Welcome to Rethinking Humanity Interviews. I'm Lacey Delane. Hi, I'm Sonia Larea. And welcome. We're so glad to have you all here. Um, it is Thursday, January the 7th. It is the day after an historic day in the United States of America and, and arguably the world. We had a lot happen yesterday, Sonia. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm kind of a little bit dis disheveled, to be honest. Um, Lacey, I saw you in the morning. Actually, whoever was watching us saw us in the morning. We were all excited about our big win, the two Senate uh, seats here in Georgia. So there was uh, an up feeling like a euphoria. Unfortunately, um, I think it was after like one, two, I don't know the exact time when the issue at the Capitol happened that we had uh, individuals storming the Capitol, which you can give us a little more insight for those. I'm sure the world knows, but we can re, yeah. you know, we'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah. You know, it was amazing. Like you said, yesterday we were live um, at noon, just talking about the historic um, win for the two Democratic senators in the runoff races. Um, and just shortly after that, I got a text from a friend and they said, um, what's going on at the Capitol? And I didn't know a whole lot, but I just thought there were just people outside protesting. I didn't mm -hmm. know what was really happening. And then I turned on NPR because I was doing grocery shopping. And, you know, once I got back in the car, I turned on NPR and I was like, whoa, that's mm -hmm. a lot more than a protest. Yeah. We were on some chats and I think um, I saw you writing yet. Yeah, I mean, that some of the statements of storming the Capitol, insurrection, Right. It's, it's something that I don't think any of, well, no one, I believe, has experienced that here in, you know, the USA. <laughs> right. I mean, I, we were talking just before we went live and I, I said, I think this is much uh, like this is a bigger deal than 9-11. You know, I, I obviously I was in high school during 9-11. And so that was the biggest thing. I think that's probably the biggest recent history thing. This is this is huge, especially considering that there's clear evidence that this has been incited by our sitting president, that this Correct. was stirred up by him. Right. And that's a very, mm -hmm. a very scary thought. Yeah. And one thing I'd want to point out, whatever anyone's political ideology is, is that we, you know, the USA is known as for this peaceful uh, country where when you have transition of power, they look to us, you know, to our democracy. So I think the, I mean, the fear for me or the sadness rather that I would like to express is that what is this set as a precedent going in the future? You know, we, we're supposed to be, you know, it's like you're the example of being a leader. And yes, we have flaws and our country has a history, a, you know, checkered history that we're obviously trying to work on now. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to be a beacon of like hope for other countries around the world. So yesterday was very sad. Yes, it was uh, an anxiety inducing moment. I, I, I think I realized how much the how much national traumatic events or national trauma really affects the individual. I felt it myself. I mean, I think I was. I was like, at one point in time watching the coverage, it was, felt like I was like having trouble breathing, which is the first time that's ever happened to me. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it's just amazing. Um, and, and it's quite embarrassing if I'm being very frank, um, mm -hmm. that, he, that we're in a moment like this um, as, as our country. I mean, as uh, President George Bush tweeted, I believed, or released mm -hmm. a statement that right. said, this is something like something that happens in a banana republic. This is not um, how a democracy works. And so there's a lot we could dive into on that. Um, mm -hmm. with, not the purpose of the show, but it was just uh, certainly something that we wanted to mention, because how can you not? Exactly. We wanted to acknowledge it, uh, to your point, Lacey, uh, because I'm sure everyone out there has seen or heard something about this. But um, yeah, one day at a time here. <laughs> yeah, one day at a time. Well, um, so we are uh, Rethinking Humanity interviews for the Rethinking Humanity podcast today. You can follow us on Instagram at Rethinking Humanity or on Twitter at Rethinking Humanity. Rethinking has no vowels. Uh, I know that's so tricky to communicate, but I'm just doing the best <laughs> I can. But <laughs> we're working on all that. that, all that. Um, today, we're so excited um, to have 
a psychologist and a psychoanalyst, Dr. Carrie Malawista with us. We're going to bring her on in just a second. Um, and we're going to talk about um, the ongoing uh, mental issues, mental health issues that we um, will likely see as a result of COVID-19. And I will say to connect what we were talking about just a few minutes ago and the things that took place yesterday, um, I do think, and I wonder what you think about this, Sonia, um, that the underlying issue of COVID-19 happening in the mm -hmm. midst of, mm -hmm. of all this, um, I think it probably made, it probably had an effect on people being a little bit more of a, in a frail, fragile, not as strong emotionally state. Mm -hmm. And it probably um, added to the likelihood that something like that would, would happen. What do you think about that? Um, what, I don't know if I would, what I would say is that we've been in isolation and there's loneliness and it's really easy, I believe, for people to look for others to connect with of their tribe or whatever. So you're, maybe an individual is more vulnerable to get in sort of like a cult like state. I mean, go down that um, right. rabbit hole. And right. so therefore uh, there's more opportunity for them to listen to whatever's out there and potentially join with yes. whatever group they are going to join with and be more motivated. Like here's my, here are my people. I'm going to go do whatever they're going to do, you know, for right. good or bad. So Unfortunately, yeah, we're all more vulnerable right now because right. of this ongoing pandemic. Um, so before we bring in um, Dr. Malwist, we wanted to read just a short couple of paragraphs from her um, op-ed in the Baltimore Sun um, that came out on January 1st. Um, it is called A Category 5 Mental Health Crisis is Coming. And this was put out on January 1st, 2021. So we want to read that to you. And our awesome technical producer has that on screen for you to kind of follow along with us. Um, and so we're going to read just the first couple paragraphs and then the last paragraph. So, Whenever a hurricane nears our shores, the government implements a system to track the disaster, including assigning a score on a scale of one to five to assess its severity and to guide disaster preparedness efforts. A storm reaching a magnitude of three or higher has the potential for devastating damage and loss of life. No such scale exists to warn us of the psychological dangers of our current crisis. While the invisible COVID-19 virus devastates our nation, we are simultaneously bombarded by pale I'm sorry, by gale force winds of financial hardship, racial and political tensions in a polarizing election where the loser refuses to concede. Mm -hmm. Mr. Biden's commitment and reliance on medical expertise, in contrast to his predecessor, offers us hope, as does the distribution of vaccines, but no vaccine can inoculate us from the grief, pain, and anxiety wreaked by the pandemic. Mental health symptoms, after all, do not respond to vaccines. Behavioral health professionals are urgently needed on the COVID-19 task force to tackle the psychological devastation and debris that will be left behind from this Category 5 mental health storm. And that, with that, we will bring in our guest, the writer of this op-ed, and a psychologist and psychoanalyst from the uh, D.C. area, Dr. Carrie Malawista. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Hi, Lacey. Hi, Sonia. Thank you Welcome. for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Well, Thank you. Um, how are you doing, first of all? And um, and what what kind of motivated you to write this article? Yeah, well, well I'm in private practice um, in uh, Virginia and Maryland. And what I was seeing in my patients was just over these months, increasing anxiety, depression, isolation, and then the difficulty that... Um, my practice was full, my colleagues were full, I wasn't able to find psychiatrists to see patients. It really started to feel overwhelming. Like I couldn't even provide help for people calling me when I was mm -hmm. not, not available. And then when um, President-elect Biden started the task force, I looked uh, you know, to see what was being offered mental health-wise and noticed that the task force didn't have mental health people on it, which mm -hmm. concerned me. And I thought, 
it's equally part of the problem as the, are the physical symptoms we're seeing. So I wrote this in somewhat a plea, hoping that the national government, which can bring a certain attention to the problem, would be included. Mm -hmm. And have you, in your practice over the years and these types of, um, you know, traumatic events, I guess we could call them, on a larger scale, have you seen um, a similar pattern in that the government hasn't really acknowledged the need for mental health? Or have you seen, um, you know, that be different based on the situation? How, what, what have you observed of that? Well, I think the government, well, Biden and the Tesla would acknowledge the mental health problems. I think people see them. I guess the last two times I experienced something along with my patients was both around 9-11 where we were all experiencing a national event and somewhat at a distance, Katrina, where we mm -hmm. saw the impact and the trauma. Um, being from the DC area, I wasn't personally in it, but truly the trauma for the, you know, Texas, Mississippi, the whole Southern area. Um, and again, like with a hurricane, the government has clear plans on how to respond. The debris is there, we can see it. But now the problem with COVID is we can't see the virus, nor can we see the impact. But um, I know I'm talking to my friends and colleagues all the time about the patients they're seeing and the amount of stress from adults to adolescents to children, each experiencing it in their own way, but quite severely. Um, and for myself personally, I'm able to work from home. I work by telemedicine, uh, you know, teletherapy or on the phone. I have my husband with me, so I'm one of the fortunate ones. I'm not completely alone and I have my work. Where a lot of people have lost their work, their income, um, the devastation is huge. Mm -hmm. So I would, one of my questions is, I, I know that there have been other articles out there about you know, the psychological impact of COVID-19 and we're talking about you know, people not being able, like you're saying, to leave their home and uh, also losing their jobs. I mean, the list is endless. Are you aware of any process that someone could do, say, that was listening to this, um, that could, would they contact their local uh, government or the federal government? Or what would you encourage people to do? Well, I don't know about contacting, you know, contacting your local community mental health, but I'm sure they're feeling quite at their limits. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's what I would want the task force to address. For example, uh, rurals, rural areas of the country really need more mental health access mm -hmm. um, and uh, more underserved areas really mm -hmm. should be paid attention to. I think high schools right now need more right. mental health help for, their, for the teenagers. Um, yeah. And I would like to see the task force implement, for a brief period of time, they've allowed therapists to see people beyond our state uh, where we're uh, oh. licensed. Oh, that's and I, I hope they'll increase, you know, continue that because in some ways I've had a very rich opportunity where I've even seen a couple people from other countries right now because I'm allowed to see people in a more flexible way. But they've been talking about maybe pulling that back, which I think would be a mistake too early. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I think one thing that I have observed over the course of this pandemic. <laughs> is is thinking kind of like we're done it's over right. we're out right. of it right. way too early and that's a very good example of that yeah because i'm even hearing from some people even though it's been so devastating they're talking about how they've been so isolated they're almost afraid to go out not just for the physical danger but emotionally like they've sort mm. of cocooned a bit and i think we're going to see people a bit phobic about entering out into the wider world you know, that's so interesting to me. And I was going to connect with what you said a little bit ago about people who had lost their work and were really in isolation. I'm a, a single female, obviously female, and I live alone. And yeah. I was alone during most of 2020. I actually yeah. have a roommate now, so that's much better. But I didn't at the time. It was so hard. It was so hard. And I just got so used to being alone. And it's it's hard. We're not hardwired. No, we're we're social animals and we really need physical contact. And even Zoom, it gives a little bit of that contact, but we're not with the smells, the pheromones. There's interesting studies how when you're in person with people, your heart's 
synchronize even. We don't even know that. And how much we don't get that in these, you know, flat screens. Wow. Um, and I think that is a real problem. Um, I know I feel even after being on Zoom, you know, a Zoom type uh, call all day long, it's exhausting in a different way than it would have been emotionally sitting with people. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because I think it's fascinating in the article, speaking of Zoom, is I'm interested in the young people that are being raised in this environment. So everything is, of course, they're very tech savvy. Uh, they know they're, they're on their phones, they're on the computers, they're doing Zoom for school. How mm. are they going to do developmentally as they grow older? And then as adults, I mean, this is like a whole new generation, right? Right. And we don't know the impact. You know, when you think I've been out in the world and I see two and three year olds with masks and the way children learn socialization and response is to see people's, particularly their smiles. If you do studies of babies, that's mm -hmm. what the baby looks at the eyes and smiles. And here you can't read anyone's face with a mask on and what that will mean for children. And also you think of kids with their magical thinking, you know, ghosts can be monsters under the bed. Here we have a virus that they can't see, but is real and how terrifying the world is developmentally. And I think we don't know what the impact of that will be. Um, so parents do have to weigh protecting physical health with also, right. you know, I see a lot of adolescents and some parents who were very nervous were keeping their kids completely in the house. And I said, you know, they have to go out, ride a bike, you know, wear a mask and stay distance with friends, but you have to balance the, the safety versus the mental health safety. Would you it say is. that with the, in the educational environment too, like balance like Zoom classes with doing in-person smaller classes or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate for these school systems, the problem they're in because kids are really, teenagers particularly are meant to be with other teens mm -hmm. <laughs> and Yet for teachers who are older or maybe have health risks, they were in, they're in danger with teenagers who might be carrying it but don't show the physical symptoms. Um, so I would actually like to see adolescents high up on the list for getting the vaccine with oh, elderly and with uh, mental um, medical workers because that would allow them to go back to school. And I think we would avoid more of the mental health issues which are particularly prevalent Adolescents are already vulnerable to mental health issues. And this is really, I talk to adolescents in there in their room and, you know, I'm using it, they're, they're saying, I'm losing my mind, you know. Right, really right of course. Yeah. You yeah. know, and a more resilient kid who's basically healthy might do okay and, you know, feel bad. But kids mm -hmm. who are vulnerable to suicide or depression, this is, this is devastating. And yeah. And Sorry. Go ahead. No, no go ahead. I was just going to point out with the inequity. I was thinking if you come from a family of means, you might have more opportunity to do these social things or to go out where someone else cannot. They're more stuck in the envir their environment. Right. 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 It, I mean, the you really see the difference in financial. You know, some of these families who have more wealth have made pods of school for them to go to school together. They've paid for private teachers. But what about a parent, to, a single parent having to work? What do they do with their child? It's truly desperate for them. Yes. Um, you, I, yeah. you know, I was going to say, I think what ends up, maybe what ends up happening for those kids um, is probably something similar to what happened for me um, during 2020 and first many people who were home without a job and particularly more uh, spending more time alone than with people which is going into technology, going into their phone, being on their phone, being on screens more. Right. And I think there is, I mean, just apart from being alone as an individual, as a human being, uh, that's hard enough. But then when you add in social media and being on the phone, that adds a whole new level of depression um, and anxiety that we'll, we end up experiencing. And then when you talk about a developing human being, teenagers being in, involved in that and the different, it's a, at a whole nother level because of their friends being on there and they're comparing right. themselves and are, am I good enough? And is that picture cute enough? And it's just it's, a lot. It's hard to imagine. And I saw so many kids who I saw them through applying to college and then suddenly they can't go to college. 
you know, and your whole sense of future and hope and what what's going to come mm. is kind of shattered. And so mm. I find that's the most painful. It's different for an adult who's, again, more in my situation where you can work, you have your family, right. but for mm. young, young people, you know, it's difficult. What, what yeah. do you see? Oh, sorry, Sonia. No, no, no. I was just going to last comment I was going to make. And the, the mm -hmm. irony here, we're supposedly have this time. So even when we're not, we're supposed to be doing these things, you know, you see someone online, well, they created a house, they made 20 scarves, they ran a marathon. So there's that comparison too. And that's the problem with the, with the social media, I think, is it's kind of an alternate world that yes. you're looking at that you're not really in. That's a good point. Cause you know, I heard that even before the COVID pandemic, you know, family, people only post all their great things they're doing and how depressed people get saying, I can't do that. And now with COVID, right. You know, person, I'm making all special meals. I've run a marathon. I've, you know, and they're like, I could hardly get out of bed and yeah, yeah. It does not, it does not help. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I wonder um, too, if you could speak a little bit more to the balance of staying in and going out. I think, you know, at first when this pandemic hit, we were all just concerned about the actual physical health. And we were like, we need to shut in. We need to stay in. Um, there's still folks I think that are doing that. Um, and I think as time has gone on, what we've realized is we just, we need more of a balance because our mental health matters. And so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit about what are some ways that you see that being the healthiest and some ways that we can balance that. Right. Well, that, I, that was the other factor in writing this. I saw with winter coming, particularly in the colder states, the idea that at least when the weather was nice, we could be outside a lot walking. You could see your friends and sit six feet apart. And I saw as the weather was dropping to 40 and 30, I thought, what is going to happen? We can't even then sit outside with our friends. Um, so I think whatever way you buy it, if you can get a little heater, anything to sit outside, you know, even going over to neighbors and bringing a meal, you know, just whatever way you can make contact and really reach out to people, you know, who are alone particularly and you know talk through the window there are safe ways to do it but we need to make sure we are thinking of them um, uh, i wanted to go back to what you said that there's something actually i spoke with lacy about now is it a stigma or taboo to your point about i can't get out of bed i'm depressed because i think another part of this is that each of us as you write in the article none of us is immune and yet it's important to share how you feel. And I think some people are afraid of saying that, that I'm depressed, whether it will affect them in their social circles or their jobs. Um, but I, I believe that's one of the problems in our society that we're not allowed sort of in some circles to talk about this. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I mean, I think over the years, mental health has gotten more People more freely say, oh, I've been to a therapist. I remember 20, 30 years ago, someone would say, oh, you wouldn't even tell anyone. It meant something was wrong. I think particularly younger people are much more open to it and accepting mm -hmm. of the idea that, yeah, I'm depressed or I, I'm anxious. So I don't hear as much of that taboo anymore, which is positive. Um, and I think the mainstream media writes more about it. Uh, you see it in TV shows. Um, so I think it's getting better but it's I'm sure there's communities where it's still not considered. I hate to stereotype, but you know, maybe older men who feel like they were supposed to, you know, be stoic mm -hmm. and strong. Sure. But younger pe younger people are I think much more open. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think you're right the more that people talk about. It. I know in the book I think that Michelle Obama wrote, she talked about having suffering from some depression, so it normalizes that for you know, society, because we look up to some of these people, right? Yeah, I think that was terrific that she said it. And she said right now at COVID, she thought most people were having a generalized dystymic disorder. I mean, how could you not right how now? How could you not? How could right. you not? There's, there's so much unknown right now. There's so much in uncertainty. And certainly our, our society is built around um, structures to help us feel certain about things. And we feel so much more comfortable 
when we can be certain, it's like almost like we feel like we're in control. So I can't even imagine how, um, you know, this wouldn't be a generalized uh, feeling at this point, a generalized depression. Um, and certainly nationwide, if not, you know, globally, we have that going on and in a lot of places. Yeah. And even for the people who have lost a family member, um, what it was like that you can't even mourn in the usual ways. You right. can't, you know, you you can't join together and mourn, which is such an essential part of grieving. I have a, a friend whose husband died from COVID and she was, she couldn't even go in and see him in the hospital as he was dying. You know, it was, mm. and I hear of that over and over. Um, so all our norms have just been thrown to the wayside of how we grieve. Um, and so, I forget, yeah. When you talk about your friend and others that have gone through this, is it kind of like a post-traumatic stress thing where later you're going to still be living this grief or how, you know what I'm saying? If you're not able to in the moment have these experiences. Yeah. I mean, mourning goes on, you know, over and over for long right. periods, almost in the U S we used to have this idea of like, yeah, well, we mourned, get over right. it and get back, but you mm -hmm. continually mourn. But I think, um, it's been much more compromised now with the idea that you can't be surrounded by people and talking with them over and over about the lost loved one. And just the trauma of watching, not being with someone, knowing they're in the hospital suffering. I can't imagine knowing my spouse or child, you know, was in the hospital. I can't even go in and be with them. So mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know how to rethink that because I know they were protecting everybody, but right. You know, so that's a whole nother level that we haven't had. Like you said, it's, it's not a norm. Right. You know, I'm curious um, as a single person, uh, what your thoughts are on um, the mental and emotional element of, uh, you know, other single people's um, mental health or just health around the area of dating um, and what dating looks like now, because it's just, yeah. It's so different. It's so yeah. different and it's so so challenging. Yeah, how do you date in this environment? I have, you know, I have a friend, a man who lives in Brooklyn who's been in his apartment, he says for 8 months and he, you know, he's not dating. And yeah. what I see, I see a bunch of college students who I've been seeing now through online and what they've, you know, and they do it in secret, but what they're doing is they're so careful every day and then online they're meeting people hooking up late at night and having you know sexual encounters right. but then feeling bad after in a way because it's not satisfying what mm -hmm. they're doing and then they're worried the risk and so mm -hmm. they're trying to come up with a way to satisfy their physical needs which at that age are so great and right. contact with someone but it it doesn't feel good because it's not like they can keep spending time mm -hmm. with the person mm -hmm. um so mm. there's all these areas that are just not I think the way something good that could come out of that too. And this is how I've really tried to approach it with, with my dating life is that, you know, um, it does give an opportunity to, to get to know someone over time, um, from a distance, a physical distance. Um, and that's, that's can be an advantage because I feel like we, uh, we don't, we don't tend to take a lot of time just generally speaking. Um, and so that could be, I think that could be a silver lining, uh, no. kind of thing that comes out of it. It's just different. It's just totally right. different. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And for someone like your age or someone older who can uh, who can establish that kind of connection or relationship, but an adolescent or a college student often doesn't have the maturity of how to mm -hmm. how to interact intimately with someone. Just they're meeting through. Um, whether a friend or an app, but I think there are these silver linings. You know, when I saw some kids in therapy who had a lot of school phobias, they've been so relieved at having, you know, being oh, able right. to move school to home. They were like all their anxiety because they were in a constant state of panic about school. Mm. So for them, there was a silver lining or some families who now got to slow down and parents who were working and never around got to be home with their kids. So there are these pockets of things that have made you know, uh, positive impact. Um, I know my husband, and I even, you know, each day we'd start going for long walks together, which we never had, we'd be busy running around. So that was a positive. Um, yeah, Lacey and I actually talked about that, where through this time, as you're pointing out the silver lining is people have had to stop and sort, slow down. 
and say, what am I doing with my life? And having these existential questions like, why was I working 80 hours a week? Or why am I even do, you know, who am I now that I don't have this position? And so this has been kind of eye opening for many people. Mm Yeah. And, and people I think already who have some resilience after this experience may find strengths from it, certain resilience, but a person who's more vulnerable or still developing, who doesn't have that kind of resilience, they can't then find their way through it. So, you know, some people will say, well, listen to a mindful app, you know, and that will help someone who's at a pretty steady level, but someone in a severe depression, telling them to listen to a mindful app really doesn't doesn't offer them much. Right. That's the problem. And I think your point earlier about um, someone like a single parent trying, I mean, economics is a huge factor. So if you have that cushion and you can do those self-care things, mm-hmm. that's awesome. But there are people that just have to get up and keep going and keep going right. to jobs where they're even vulnerable to, you know, so they're a right. social worker. So that's right. another added stress. And like this home to my family on top of, I still have to make a living. Yeah, I can't imagine for these frontline workers in the hospitals who are trying to deal with the massive numbers coming in and the deaths must be unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That, and that that actually, I, I think I, I could ask you about that. I read, and I'm sure all of us have seen the articles of them breaking down with having to deal with, you know, death every day. This this level, like one of the articles I read, the I guess was an intern said, you know, she saw death maybe once a month. Now she's seeing it daily, you know, just yeah. wow. that, that has to be so traumatizing, mm. you know? Mm. And it is, and you'd have to harden yourself almost to get through the day, and that's a loss because you can't, you're physically and mentally, your body can't keep mm. taking that. Um, so we don't know what the long-term repercussions will be for those people. Yeah. And and like you said about people being, not seeing their loved ones, I was thinking, and also, and now I know the vaccines out there, but not, if you're a, I guess a frontline worker, you can't even show like hug or the empathy part, you you know, you're again, another barrier has to be really tough. Yeah, and things that we aren't able to put into words or verbalize, we can hold in the body. So we're gonna see a lot of physical sickness from our body holding you mm-hmm. know, all the stress. Um, and our body holds trauma. Uh, there's a interesting book, uh, Vanderkolk, uh, The Body, yes. The Body the Score. I love that yeah. book. It's <laughs> right, right. It's really powerful because the body really does hold memory in a way that we don't even understand. And I think for children, the memories of what has been happening are going to be stored in their bodies without knowing the impact. Right. Um, I had a powerful example of that myself where I, it was quite shocking. I was at uh, watching a movie uh, when the garden was eaten. And it was about a documentary about the Knicks when they won the big, I'm not a basketball person, so I don't even know if I could explain it, but it was back when Walt Frazier and Bill Bradley. So right. this was like 40 yeah. years ago, okay. 50 years ago. And I'm watching this film and it was the exciting penultimate moment when they were about to win. And it brought them, um, it was the first time a basketball team had black and white players. So it was this powerful and I'm watching that exciting moment. And at that moment, I felt a punch gut, like someone had punched me in the stomach of grief. And I thought it was bizarre. This is a happy moment. I was enjoying the movie. I knew nothing about the basketball team. And the next, we went out for dinner with friends and we're walking. I'm like, that was weird. I don't know what happened to me watching that. And everyone's talking about how much they loved the movie. And I said, um, when did that happen? Does anyone know what year that was? And people were like, I don't know, 69, 70, maybe 71. And I looked up on my phone and it was May 8th, 1970. It was the day my mother died. Oh my God. Wow. I, but I still had no memory of it, but I had looked at the newspaper. My mother died in a car accident. And I looked up Mm. that newspaper. The bottom of the page was the accident. The top of the fold was Nick's win oh my championship. God. Oh my gosh. But I still could not tell you I knew what happened with the Knicks. I don't know. But yet right. my body registered mm-hmm. it. And when I heard the win, I felt it. Wow. It was, wow. That's the first time I ever had a personal experience of my body had the memory. Mm. So, um, wow. We are our, our unconscious 
knows so much about us. We, yes. we don't about ourselves. I mean, we don't, we're not conscious of it, but right. our body will tell us. Our yeah. body knows. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. So that was a powerful, and there's lots of examples that way you see. And so that's what's so interesting in therapy when I see patients long-term that they have all these memories that are affecting their lives, but they have no recognition of how they're operating within them and in their body. So it's very powerful. Yeah, I think Victor has a screenshot here of our of this book. I wanted to throw it up because up on the screen just because it's a great book. Um, yeah. It's Body Keeps the Score um brain mind and body in the healing of trauma and what's this author's name bessel van der kolk um right. correct yes. yes okay so that's a, a highly recommended one um for those of us which i can't imagine that there's anyone that goes through life without trauma <laughs> would you agree with that dr Malwesta? yeah no i think everyone has there's you know trauma where there's main you know events that happen and then there's what we call strain trauma where someone who just you know someone living in a violent neighborhood where day to day they live in a traumatic situation and we call it strain because it's just constant versus an event that happens so both kind of but we all have one or both at different points in our lives Mm. and some have much more um um, to just to tell a personal story, I think I might have told Lacey this. So when you were talking um, about your own experience as a child, my parents, my father's from South America, so I was taken at a young age to live with my grandparents. But I was literally like I think I was two or something, so I don't have a memory of it, right? But there was this like abandonment thing because I literally left a country with not my parents to go live somewhere else. But anyway, as I grew up, et cetera, et cetera, I would have these experiences that when someone would leave, it was the weirdest thing. I would just feel like I was going to die. Like at that moment, I have felt like, and I did not understand it till later when I grew up, I did some therapy realizing that I, I, I associated leaving with like a death. And it right. was, it was so bizarre. It could be just something very simple. Like my sister was visiting and her plane was going to leave the next day. And all of a sudden I felt this panic and I Mm. never knew why am I feeling like this? You know? Right. Right. And how it registers, it's there and it operates throughout life, but you don't know it's there and how much our memories even can change because we, they, we think of memories as something that happened, but they're always updated by who we are in the present. That's why, therapy can change people because you can relook at them in a new way and re-remember things. It doesn't mean they didn't happen, but that you can be, the narrative can change of how you viewed it. Yeah. Um, right. So and we I was, don't know what the, Yeah. I was just going to say, I can understand that intellectually, you know this, but emotionally you are still having the feelings of whatever, right. it is, whatever the trauma was. That's what's interesting to me about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it always fascinates me. And with patients, it always does. Um, I mean, endless stories of where these things come back and you don't, and often around grief or trauma is where they particularly lie. This this is like, makes me so happy right now that we're talking about this because, you know, honestly, seriously, I think one of the things that I treasure the most in life now that I've, I'm learning how to be self-aware, how to know what's going on, how to go, oh, I just got really upset or my body just did this and I don't know why it did. Let me think about it. Let me process it. Let me think that this could be related to something that happened to me. Let me see if I can learn about myself in this way to hear other people um, talking about that. That's awesome. And that truly, you know, that is how we go from, you know, uh, not, not living in a way that is, that we are fully alive, that we are thriving to where we can thrive and not just individuals, not mm-hmm. as just as individuals, but also collectively. And mm-hmm. I think that that kind of um, approach to life really uh, prevents a lot of, uh, of like violence and negativity and those types of things that we see on a more societal scale. If we were... Right more aware in that way, I think we would get to a place where community-wide, we were, um, were less negative, I guess, is the way, way to say it. 
Right. And that you could put meaning to something in words. It just doesn't have to overtake you with feelings, right. which then you have to act out, whether drink or drugs or violence, but that instead you have a means of processing them and articulating them. Can you, for our audience, even for me, I'm going to admit my ignorance. I mean, I know that. Can you explain in better terms, how would you define collective grief? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. I'm not sure if I, I don't know it as a particular kind of term, but what I think of is when there's like, say, if this is what you mean, like national events, right, right, like that's Katrina, what I mean. yeah. that we are all experiencing mm -hmm. collective grief, which in some ways can pull a country together, um, mm -hmm. like it did around 9-11 or Katrina. What's sad now in our country is that it's such a split around the grief. And that is very disturbing, that usually we will pull together as a country. And I guess it helps, I mean, psychologically to feel like you have an outside bad in a sense. Like, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. another country did this to us, war, we pulled together, but now we mm -hmm. are split within our country, like at the Civil War. And that is a destructive, when you think of the Civil War, how that has not gone away. The remnants. Right, and right. I, I, not to get political, but I worry the remnants of today's times, how these might not heal. Exactly. Um, no, that's I like excellent. actually um, yeah. Gretchen uh, Whitmore of Michigan, I know has put uh, groups into place uh, through the state for mental health issues around this. But I would almost, my fantasy, I, you know, it might be too idealistic, would be around the country of support groups that mix people who are on the right and the left and that you have to know each other as individuals mm -hmm. and talk about these things, but with a person that you're actually knowing and liking. Yeah, I think I love it's the that. only way to heal. Yeah. I don't know, you know, if I wasn't working, that would be my fantasy to put together these kinds of groups. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's, I love what you're saying because one of the things and you probably noticed with studies when they've sat people down as individuals talking, uh, just about something general, like would you like to have, you know, your drug uh, prices at the drugstore less, or would you like to? Everybody's kind of in agreement, but when you start right. doing the labeling and separation, mm -hmm. then you create this, you know, the, the other, as opposed right. to we we can agree on a lot, mm -hmm. right. It's all about othering. And we do that. I mean, I think there's just a natural part of our brain that does that. We look for who's in and who's out of our group. Mm -hmm and how to overcome that. And we've done it based often on, you know, physical differences, um, because those are the quickest we can identify. Um, and that we feel safer somehow if I can say, oh, I'm not like them. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're the other and I'm, I'm the good one. And it's very sad. Yeah. Well, how do you, what do you say to um, how best for us to overcome, it can be individually or as a group, this co collective trauma that we're, we're speaking of just generalize, you know, not, not associating with any particular incident, but just collective trauma in general, how would you say, you know, are some ways that we, we get through that or even historically we've seen people get through yeah. that. I mean, it's a big question, but I think community, you know, again, the idea of pulling together as mm -hmm. a group and having, something you're working towards. And I do hope, which I imagine he will, our new President Biden will really be trying to heal that rift. He's doing that in ways that I like already, not not trying to further the split, but to mm -hmm. really just let's bring bring this together. And I know in I, our, my community with my friends and family, we keep talking about what this is like. And then that makes us feel we're not alone. Mm -hmm. And I think we can grieve together like of the events yesterday, how do we grieve what we're losing in that? You know, not an either or, but as a country, what we're losing, so. Right, I think that's such a great point. Community is so important and it's everything. It's something we've talked a lot about, Sonia and I. Um, I remember the, the book that we first read together after Sonia and I met at a philosophy meetup group here in Atlanta, it's called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Have you read that? No, I've heard of that. No, that's a good. I've just read. I don't know if you're cast. Yes, I've heard I, I oh. have it right here behind me, actually. It's and I've, it's a I'm brilliant. Like, book. It's a brilliant book. Yeah, yeah, 
that's and incredible. she writes it so in a way that's inviting to hear. She does just what you would want someone to do, to say, to use very clear examples from the real world of how this could happen. And Well, to your point, Carrie, it's, uh, she really addresses that whole othering too. It's really fascinating how we're always looking for that, well, I'm here, but at least there's somebody down here, you know, in another spot. Yeah, and we have to admit it in ourselves. Right, to own right. that part, you know, and you know, we can even if we could admit it, I feel very badly when I remember a moment, this was, again, some years ago, I had two young children at the time. And I was watching the news and a local family, maybe a town or two away. Um, they had a story that their two daughters, their only children died in a uh, ice skating pond, they went in and both died. You know, wow. and here I have my baby in my arms, my three-year-old, and I, you know, I was just like, oh God, that could be me. You know, they live a town away. One was a doctor. And the closer it felt to me, the more terrifying it was. And then they put the picture up on the screen and they were of maybe Asian descent. And I noticed in a second, I had a little bit of, oh, that can't be me because mm -hmm. of the difference. And I felt of but I was glad I could observe it because I could see how we do that in ways right. to say, oh, I, that can't be me. See, they're different. And yeah. that's sad because they're no different than me. But at least I could recognize it and see how we do that. Yeah. Sadly, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, Self-awareness, like I was yeah. saying, it's, it's so important. It's how we can begin to heal all of this division, I believe, um, is being willing to take a look at ourselves and say, hey, Maybe that was a little racist. Maybe that was not cool. Yeah. Maybe, wow, that that response was different than what my real values are. In my intellectual, right. But viscerally, exactly. in such a dangerous moment, like I could lose my two children, my mind would want to do anything to say, uh-oh, right. no, no. And I you think you're right about owning it. Yeah, owning it and recognizing it. And and. This is going to be a process because our culture, I mean, we have media, we have so many aspects that we've been sort of infiltrated with images or messages. So it's kind of educating yourself, like Lacey was talking about self-awareness, you know, reading, interacting, wow. like you're saying with others. It's mm -hmm. a multitude of things to get there. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think the other thing is, is a, ma a, a more broad availability of therapy um, of behavioral or mental health. Um, and I think this ties back to your um, op-ed as well, because I know that's a call you're making at the end of the piece mm -hmm. that we need more um, mental health providers. Uh, we need more therapists. We need more psychologists. Um, how do you see, how do we address this category five storm um, that's on, on the way and how do we address, um, you know, what's already here? Um, what are some ways that we can begin to to come to a place where individually we're able to to be more self aware and say, oh, that was kind of racist. Yikes! Um, I'm not going to judge myself right now. I'm just going to notice it and yeah. I'm gonna learn from it, and I'm going to become better or or be become different. How do we start? How do we get there? Well, there's lots of ways. I mean, not even just mental health, but you know, book clubs, getting together, reading a book like that together, whether cast and really talking about it is one level. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, it, I think kids today in schools are much better yes. um, uh, taught about thoughtfulness around these issues and othering and race in a way that when I was a child was not done. So at least I think we are getting more mindful of it, but it did take the, I think this event, this horror with George Floyd, that really brought it to mind in a different way. And I think it, it, it really includes being able to be empathic, to really put yourself in the other's shoes mm -hmm. and know what that would feel like. And again, that means not denying that we're so different than the other. Um, but at a mental health level, that's why I would like to see the task force have one or two mental health people on there where they can. Um, you know, PSA, you know, uh, public service ads can yes. be put up that they could do and where you can reach out. And yeah. then, you know, I was for a while supervising a young woman, a therapist in Montana. I forget how she found me. And she was in a community, I think where she said she had like 500 cases 
of like the really, you know, some really difficult, difficult cases, one person, 500. And I was like, you, there's nothing you can do to help that. So she was always just trying to deal with the latest crisis, but you weren't getting anywhere. So particularly yeah. places that are more remote like that, how they mm -hmm. really are desperate, you know, they could come up with, I mean, if we're going far-fetched, but, um, you yeah, know, the idea of um, world. Yeah. Biden, you know, putting in things like a required, not military service, but some kind of Peace Corps volunteer mm -hmm. that everyone, oh, right, you yeah. know, like Israel has where everyone goes into the military. But what about if every high school student gives one year, it might be to go to a rural community and help or go to a different area with, you know, people that you didn't grow up with and providing awesome. the funds for that. That that right there is um, actually an idea that Andrew Yang was promoting on his presidential campaign. Mm, uh, right. I can't remember what he called it. It was, but it was one of his many many policies. Um, but it was like a student exchange. Oh, it's kind like of a gap thing. year instead of a gap. Yeah, you know? it's yeah like exactly. And, and the point obviously is to bring us together, bring more unity. But you know, there's a stark difference between lifestyle in the city versus in the country. And so, and and you know, he said make it part of the curriculum for high school students, like you're saying, right. to right. go to a different part of and spend a year or whatever. Um, right. I, I personally think that going abroad too would be a great thing to add into that. Right. right. But we need some diversity for sure added into um, the high school curriculum for high schoolers, because I right. think that is the most valuable way to learn tolerance and empathy. Right. To, and to go live there though. I mean, the idea of you do, right. you know, classes where it's like how to think, uh, what do they call it? Racial um, bias training. Mm -hmm. That's intellectual. And I don't think that does the same. No, it can even have either. a negative effect. I think it even can reinforce the negatives versus I go live with a family. I really appreciate who who this family is. I, yeah. that, I, I, this, this makes me think of the differences between like Montessori education <laughs> and public school. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a certified teacher. I, I taught in public schools for several years. Um, and, and work with kids. That's just who I am and what I've, what I've mostly always done. Um, but that's exactly, it's, it's experiential learning versus right. being told. And mm -hmm. I, and I right. imagine that you as a therapist, you, you totally get it that people have to have an experience in order right. to yeah. truly learn something that actually right. like they process and, and helps them grow and change as a person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some ways I'm trying to, yeah. Um, yeah. And inner city more, again, poorer communities, sure. you know, providing more mental Absolutely. health. Absolutely. How, yeah. how behind, well, how, how few psychologists do we have right now for that the demand? The shortage, yeah. Yeah. How, for, the, for the what? For the demand uh, for psychologists right now. You know, I don't know the numbers. I only know experientially that, mm -hmm. you know, I'm getting many calls a day, which is, wow. I can't, okay. I'm full. And then I call colleagues and they don't have time. Mm -hmm. And more recently I've needed to find psychiatrists. I think I mentioned earlier for people and I call 10, 12, no one has time. And I'm starting to feel panicked. If I can't find someone for someone, how are they finding anyone? And I feel so bad for families calling me desperately saying, I need help, you know, so I'm over, I keep adding more than I really can take on. Um, so that's what's really worrisome. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I think that's, that's interesting. And I wonder, I'd love to see what the numbers are on, you know, how many people are studying to be a psychologist right oh, now, right. you know, and if that's a, I mean, it sounds like it's certainly a growing field. And if it was something that people were interested in, in studying, uh, sounds like it's going to be in high demand for a little while, for sure. It is, yeah. And again, whether it it can be something better paid and highly valued, you know, whereas you know, mm -hmm. social workers working in inner cities trying to help communities, sometimes the, I hate to say it, it's a very stressful work, and the pay right. might not be that high, and it burns. They burn out because it's not valued, at least one right. way or the other, financially. Um, um, I was also thinking how, you know, pre-COVID, we were able to go to support groups that, you know, people that don't have the income can go, at least they're in a support group of a regular, like, weekly thing that really keeps, helps them, you know, account, there's an accountability there. But 
with COVID, I'm assuming those went on Zoom or, and as you're saying, that's a different, whole different deal. Um, yeah. But when we get more of the immunizations, it would be nice to have something, you know, those kind of groups in the communities. Yes, okay. setting those up would be wonderful because you get the support of others and just sharing experiences together is enormously therapeutic. Mm -hmm. So groups is an excellent way to help more mm -hmm. numbers. Um, yeah, and I think that's what, um, I think Lacey can relate to this. She talked about being alone. I've tried to always go out, like you're saying, even if it's walk outside every day or go be in another environment just for my mental health. Um, yes. And luckily I can do that, but I know not everyone is in that same position. Um, and it's preferable if I can connect with someone some way, but as you're saying, it's harder uh, with the winter and you know the weather. So it's trying yeah. to be creative. Yeah, and you can. I, I have a, a good friend who runs a company, and you know she would hardly see a lot of her staff. She has a big staff, and but with COVID feeling so isolated, she has set up, I don't know how many times a week, lunch one on one with all oh. her. So people she didn't even get to know, she's like chat, chatting with, talking about books they like, travel, and she's had this wonderful experience that actually she would have never had if she had stayed in the office because mm -hmm. she knew she had to reach out to these people. And they, and they're so relieved to share how the experience has been for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think of another case too, where um, particularly kids who are special needs, I had a patient who had an adolescent son who has autism and his structure of going to school every day was so essential to his mm -hmm. life. And yeah. then right now without structure, he's been having you know tantrums and rages something he never had before covid and they're really mm -hmm. at a you know they're in a panic of what to do to help him but i think it is the loss of structure for him so one thing parents can do i think it is important if you are mostly staying in to even have structure you know you have a schedule still you can't you know for a while we were all just in our pajamas sitting around but it's really important to have some schedule because you know we need that yeah. to feel. I was going to ask you, yeah, about that. I think the structure makes sense for people to have some, you know, normalcy. I suppose. Um, right. Yeah. Still, you have meals at a time. You right. Know, you, right. You, you, right. You I, I need structure. <laughs> right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The brain counts on structure. It needs it. Yeah. Yeah. As we're wrapping up, could you give us any more tips for kind of maintaining as as well as we can our mental health? in such an unprecedented time? Yeah, um, you know, just sort of summarizing what we've said, I think like Sonia was saying, going out for a walk, particularly if you can go with a friend, you can stand far enough apart. I do that at least once or twice a week with a friend where I get out and, you know, we just talk and it makes all the difference. I go back and I feel better. So, um, and it's harder for people in cities where they're needing to feel more, you know, isolated. I think, um, reaching out to friends, bringing a meal and doing something to give back helps. So even though we feel in need, I know I feel better if I do something where I've helped another. So whatever way you can volunteer to do something in a protected way. Mm. That's a great idea. So That's connecting, connecting, connecting. Yeah. 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 I know the exercise for me, I'm a soccer player. Uh, I was in the gym all the time before uh, COVID and now that's not happening. So I know exercise is a good one, but I love this about like going and doing something to help other people um, yeah. and getting people to go with you. So that's mm -hmm. really cool. Well, mm -hmm. Dr. Calavista, we really appreciate you being here. Sure. Uh, Thank you. Uh, awesome. I'm just so excited yeah. about this episode. We've got your website here. We're going to pull up and show the folks that are watching right now. Um, where can people find you? Uh, where would you like for them to find you? How, what would you, how oh. yourself, girlfriend, go for it. Uh, <laughs> well, that's my name there. If people want to uh, Google me, they could find my website, Dr. Carrie Malawista. Um, I like to do a lot of writing and talking. And so if people wanted to reach out, they can reach me through my website. Great. And you have a couple of books, I believe. Is that correct? Um, three books. Um, all psychology related, um, wearing my tutu to analysis and other stories, which uses personal stories as a way to teach for new students or for general audience so that they can learn psychological thinking. Okay. Um, we're, we're coming out with a second version of that later this year. And um, I'm actually 
my I wrote a novel about um, a 13 year old and how they uh, lost a parent, and it's coming out next year called Meet the Moon. Ooh, and so it's cool. it's my first novel. So we'll see how it goes. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I like that. Okay, I think Victor's going on the books page. Here we go. Wearing oh, yeah. my tutu to what analysis. analysis to analysis no. of okay. our stories. And then there's the therapist in mourning from the far away nearby um, and who's behind the couch where uh, Bob Weiner and I interviewed uh, analysts from all over the world to talk about what it's really like to do the work from a personal aspect. Ooh, cool. <laughs> that is so yeah. interesting. This is yeah. like my jam right here. <laughs> yeah, I'm a reader. I'm going to get all these books. <laughs> and then the, the, there's a Huffington Post blog with lots of different stories. And again, I use stories to teach so people can look at those if they're interested. Awesome. Very cool. Well, it has yeah. been an absolute pleasure. I think the, that our listeners uh, have probably learned a lot and hopefully been encouraged. And that's what I'm always hopeful for. We appreciate you. We appreciate you writing this op-ed. I think this is a very important issue to promote. Um, so thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. Sonia, sorry. Go ahead, Sonia. Okay. No, I've enjoyed it. I think the topics we're talking about are just so important now in this time. And uh, people are going to get a lot from this and we'll keep Great. doing it. <laughs> thank you both. Take good awesome. care. You too. Thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. And thank you everybody Bye. for listening. Have a wonderful afternoon and we'll see you on the next episode.